Welcome to S2 Underground, a freelance intelligence agency fighting terrorism, fake news, and political tyranny around the world. I'm the trouble star, punkin' instigator. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Underground. So right now, the idea of non-compliance from all sides of the political spectrum is huge. Many people see non-compliance with things like unconstitutional laws as really the only way that they can resist nowadays. But the sentiment of non-compliance is not an exact science, and in fact it's an art. An art that not many people fully understand. A lot of people wield the idea of non-compliance as a weapon to attack others, or as a shield to protect themselves from something. But really, much more finesse is required to make the idea of non-compliance a very valuable weapon in the war of information. So let's jump right into it. First off, non-compliance is very wide-ranging. So wide-ranging, in fact, that many people sometimes view an act of non-compliance as cowardice. A lot of people view compliance as all or nothing. Either you never comply at all with anything, or you comply with every single totalitarian mandate. Take mask wearing, for example. A lot of people have been seen wearing their COVID masks quote-unquote incorrectly. So much so that most mainstream media outlets have written a lot of propaganda about it. Well, let's unpack this idea. For one, a lot of people wear their masks improperly, like under their nose, for a few very different reasons. A lot of people do it because they're lazy, or because it's easier to breathe, or because they genuinely still don't know how masks are supposed to be worn. But some people do this because taking off their mask is not an option, because they would be arrested. In some parts of the country, this is an unfortunate reality. So they toe the line and intentionally wear their mask incorrectly so as to partially comply. And this brings us to our first point. Non-compliance is not just a binary choice. It is not simply a yes or no issue in many cases. Sure, there are those that try to make it seem like non-compliance is an if you're not with us, you're against us move. But in today's world, it's really not. There are many levels of passive resistance in general, and the art of non-compliance is no different. And that brings us to our first method of resistance, which is reluctant and slow compliance. A lot of times, flat-out openly defying an entity will result in being arrested. So complying, but slowly, is a great tactic. Politicians have used this to great effect since, well, the dawn of time, saying, Oh yes, Your Honor, I fully intend to comply with your court order. All the while, secretly purging email servers of incriminating evidence has worked quite well for some. In most professions, information has an expiration date. So if you take your time in complying and let others go comply before you, by the time you finally get gun to your head forced to comply, your voluntary compliance will be useless and you will be in a better position because you have had the time to prepare for more conventional resistance methods. Next is trading space for time. By fully and exuberantly complying in one area, you can buy time in another area, trading space for time. A great example of this would be a national gun registry, which more or less already exists in the United States, but definitely will be a part of daily life very soon. Well, for those of you that have ever submitted paperwork to the ATF or got something other than a normal background check, guess what? You are on borrowed time. So if you built a Form 1 suppressor or bought an SBR or something like that, 
you will most certainly be targeted first in the event that you don't comply with a national gun registry. In all of these cases, not only does the ATF, but also your local law enforcement know exactly where you live and what devices you have. And based on these devices, they can pretty accurately guess what firearms you have. So this is easy. Your local police department doesn't even have to get a court order to find out if you have guns or not. You freely admitted it by giving a copy of your ATF paperwork to your local sheriff, which is required in most of America. That removes a pretty significant barrier and allows departments and jurisdictions that have been salivating at the prospect of gun control to easily swoop in and arrest you and or steal your property, all without ever really needing a court order that specifically lets them do that. But just because the ATF and your local law enforcement jurisdiction knows about the one piece of your property doesn't mean that they have to know about all of your property. Up next is defiance and absence of supervision. This method is pretty simple. If authorities or enforcement agencies are not around, don't comply. Now this is a bit more difficult than it seems since a large number of people have now been conditioned to snitch and report their friends, family, and neighbors to law enforcement for the most trivial and totalitarian dystopian stuff. Um, but even in our area, which is pretty dystopian, we are noticing a silent code being observed. If the police are not around, more and more people are willing to take their masks off or let them slip below their nose or pull them down. And then, just as if a hidden signal were passed, whenever an authority figure appears, everyone is suddenly in full compliance without saying a word. This idea takes advantage of the same tactics that were used by government in order to condition people to wear masks in the first place. Just instead of conditioning people to wear masks, this tactic desensitizes people to others not wearing a mask. And once this mass defiance takes hold in an area or among a certain cultural demographic, it's really easy to jump over to full-blown open non-compliance in due time. Up next is disguised obedience, and this is one of our favorites. Pretending to comply on the surface while secretly doing everything one can to not comply and undermine the system. Obviously, this is one of the riskier, more active methods of non-compliance, but this is the one that everybody thinks of when they think of resistance movements over history. In fact, in fact, one of the better examples of this is the example of the French resistance efforts during the Nazi occupation in World War II. France, being world-renowned for their precious wines, was a ripe target for the plundering that swept the nation. As a result, an entire sub-resistance movement sprung up among wineries and breweries all over France. In fact, the Tour d'Argent, one of France's most famous historical restaurants, went so far as to build a hidden false wall in their wine cellar that housed over 20,000 bottles of fine French wine. They replaced all of the bottles in their massive wine cellars with new bottles and wine that just wasn't very good. Even aging these bottles, covering them with dust and cobwebs to make them look old and vintage. These actions, while they may seem trivial, were far from it and prevented a totalitarian regime from profiting from a valuable wartime commodity. We actually produced a short film on this fascinating non-compliance effort, so check it out if you're interested. But fast forwarding to today, this sentiment could be echoed by an entity that decides to comply with the federal government seizing their supplies and equipment, but in reality, giving up equipment that doesn't really work, saving the good equipment and supplies for local citizens. Or it could be as simple as a person who appears to comply and receive a medical procedure, such as a vaccination, but in reality, they don't. Up next is rewarding non-compliance. 
Yes, we're aware, we know that a lot of people, especially a large group of our listeners, have some pretty serious issues with the entirety of law enforcement right now. We understand that those sentiments are there, but we would encourage everyone, as always, to think outside of the box. Trying to convince someone that their actions are in fact contrary to the oath in which they are sworn is not easy. It quite literally is like trying to change someone's religion. So it takes a lot of time and effort. As such, rewarding actions of defying tyranny would be a step in the right direction, even if it isn't a perfect end solution. Remember, the long game got us into this mess, so the long game is going to be required to get us out. And the first move in that game is to reward people and agencies that make baby steps in the right direction. For example, if you have an entity that refuses to enforce COVID closure orders but still wholeheartedly supports something like gun control, still reward them with praise. We can work on those other issues later. Slow progress in the right direction is better than zero progress at all. The goal here is essentially to incentivize good behavior and penalize bad behavior, creating a sort of natural selection in which the people doing the right thing are treated well and rewarded, and those who choose to do the wrong thing are not rewarded. With all of the hate out there in the world currently, people respond so much more to honey right now than vinegar. So many people and groups out there are only using the vinegar, just spewing hatred and offering no way out. When a person isn't offered an out, when a person isn't offered a chance to do the right thing, they dig their heels in, figuring that they have no choice but to stick with the status quo. We noticed this happening a lot in Syria with former ISIS members. Once the fighting in Mosul was over, a lot of ISIS guys knew that their days were numbered, but they felt like their families, their friends and neighbors, would not accept them back into the community because of the atrocities that they have committed. Or even atrocities that they personally didn't commit, but their organization did. And because of this, because they felt like they had no chance at redemption, they kept fighting. At least the brothers in arms that they were fighting alongside would not judge them for their actions, right? So a big part of that war was to find ways to keep the peace and encourage families and neighborhoods and communities to accept their children back into the fold. The same sentiment has applied many times over the history of warfare, and it is no different today. So that ATF agent who starts to realize that their role in the world isn't what they thought it was, how will they react to someone screaming in their face that they are evil? They're going to dig in their heels and take a defensive position. So by offering an out, by letting people know that it is never too late to do the right thing, this creates the environment necessary for real change to occur. So even if the person or agency's net tyranny level is still pretty high, rewarding small steps in the right direction Trying a good amount of honey in conjunction with a tiny bit of vinegar is highly effective at changing a culture much more quickly than one might think. Up next is discouraging compliance. Rightly or wrongly, history does not look kindly upon collaborators. Let us not forget that during most resistance movements around the world during both world wars, once the liberation was complete, the people who had collaborated with the occupiers were in most cases treated even more harshly than the occupiers themselves. 
Now obviously things are quite a bit different nowadays and targeting collaborators at this stage indicates not only a poor understanding of history but will also result in exactly the opposite effect. Right now the collaborators hold the supermajority. Much more than half of the population of the United States is a willing participant in the situation so turning to violence will solve nothing. As we have stated many times before, ideas, rhetoric, and slow cultural change got us in this mess so the same can get us out. What this translates to in today's world is using information, culture, pride, shame, and various other emotions in order to discourage compliance. In other words, making people feel bad for complying with tyrannical orders. Again, this is not to be overdone. We're not trying to negate the exact principle we just talked about before. What we're going for is that classic parenting tactic where the parent doesn't scream or yell at the child, but rather conveys sadness. One idea that has transcended culture over the history of mankind is parental disappointment. Everyone, regardless of upbringing or culture, remembers a time when they did something bad and their parent or guardian simply said, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. That moment for most people is a crushing experience, much more so than if the parent had just yelled at the kid. This tactic inspires and motivates that person to do the right thing. Whereas, again, outright hostility encourages one to adopt a defensive attitude. And we can certainly use these sentiments to encourage the right kind of behavior. Up next is rehumanization and integration. Looking back yet again through the pages of history, we cannot dismiss all of the most horrific acts that humanity has ever conceived. Mass murder, torture, slavery, genocide. All of these acts started with one idea. Dehumanization. One of the best ways to encourage a person to murder their fellow countrymen is to remove humanity from their target. In Rwanda, the Interahamwe catchphrase was to call the Tutsis cockroaches, something that needs to be stomped out. In Nazi Germany, countless gargantuan propaganda efforts were set forth by the Nazis with the express purpose of making Jewish citizens look like animals, subhuman, dirty, and unclean. Cleanliness and association with vermin has played a massive role in the perpetuation of genocides throughout history. Even the term ethnic cleansing brings an almost surgical and sanitary element of purity and cleanliness to the human race. Let us not forget that every wartime nation does this. An element of dehumanization is necessary to motivate troops to kill another human. From long before the First World War, demeaning nicknames and even things like casual racism have been used by armed forces throughout the history of humanity to encourage dehumanization efforts among their enemies. But the dehumanization that takes place prior to a genocide is most certainly not casual or haphazard. It is the intentional dehumanization of an opposition group to such a degree that killing that opposition group would be an act of pity and charity. This has happened in every case of genocide that we know of over history. And as we can very clearly see, the initial stages of dehumanization efforts are most certainly in full swing in the United States right now. So how do we get ahead of this and defeat it? Well, surprisingly not much research has been done on this. Yes, it is certainly true that millions of people have studied the Holocaust and other genocides over history in very excruciating detail. However, when it comes to actually preventing another genocide, most of the researchers adopt an educational policy. Simply being aware of the Holocaust and how it began is the primary tool for ensuring that it never happens again. 
We think that the genocides in Rwanda, Cambodia, Armenia, Greece, Sudan, Bangladesh, Syria, Croatia, the Congo, Romania, Russia, Indonesia, Burundi, Somalia, Iraq, Yugoslavia, Crimea, Guatemala, Australia, Myanmar, Bosnia, Haiti, Chile, New Zealand, and the United States proves that awareness and remembrance of genocides is very important but it must not be the primary tool for genocide prevention. And since the first step in actually perpetrating a genocide is dehumanization, rehumanization is a critical tool in making sure that genocidal attitudes and sentiments never have an opportunity to take hold. An enemy that recognizes you as a human is far less likely to execute you in cold blood. In today's world, some institutions are set up at an infrastructural level to dehumanize an adversary. Like, for instance, our criminal justice system. One does not have to look much further than the Stanford Prison Experiment to understand how psychology is the primary weapon of dehumanization. In our justice system, people are no longer people. They are numbers. Faceless convicts being controlled by faceless guards. Now, granted, the mere nature of criminal justice as a field necessitates a lot of this, but we mention this because right now we are seeing a concerted effort by certain political groups to criminalize the existence of their opposition. Take the whole gun control issue. A lot of people nowadays are actively encouraging gun laws because they know that they won't follow them, and having 80 million fellow felons makes it impossible to arrest everyone. However, one must remember that gun control laws are not really meant to control guns. They are meant to condition their own side of the political debate. Supporters of gun control seeing gun owners as criminals is the first step in dehumanization and can be followed by an eerily familiar line of logic that has been used time and time again over history. That Bob fellow across the street is a nut job. He's a Republican. That Bob guy is crazy. I bet he voted for Trump. That crazy guy across the street has an AR-15. I saw a sticker on his truck. That insane man across the street shouldn't have a gun. That Nazi across the street only has a gun so he can hurt me. I need to do something about that Nazi across the street. I'm glad I did what I did. He was mentally ill. I actually feel sorry for the guy. I did the right thing. Facebook said so. I need to make sure that Steve down the street isn't a Nazi too. Now this dialogue and line of logic is of course an exaggeration to make a point, but it unfortunately isn't far from the truth of real historical examples from genocide perpetrators themselves. And finally, small victories. Understandably, the art of non-compliance is a pretty heavy topic. When it comes to any form of resistance, even something that seems quite trivial, such as choosing to not wear a mask, these actions must be approached with caution. As we all know by now, both government and private oligarchs are quite literally controlling most of the world we live in, and both of these entities have completely dispensed with the illusion of choice when it comes to their power. These people want compliance, and they will kill you if you outright defy them. That much is quite clear. So when it comes to standing up to the totalitarian regimes and tyrannical oligarchs that run the world, we have to take a different approach to combat them.
a different but no less effective approach. Unfortunately, a lot of people are under the impression that a passive resistance is less effective than an active resistance, a sentiment that government and billionaires are all too happy to endorse, because they know that in a direct fight, they would always win. So by encouraging an active resistance, or a boogaloo, or whatever catchy term they want, they are able to get rid of the most effective combatants quite easily. Imagine how different things would be if the American people were to realize that nonviolent and passive resistance is far more effective than combat. Let me say that one more time for the people in the back. Imagine a world in which the people of this great nation were to realize that the monopoly that the government has on violence is actually the least effective way to control people, and that violence is irrelevant when it comes to changing the way people think. So let's get out there and make violence irrelevant again. The monopoly on violence is really the only way that, that government and powerful people have the ability to control people. So if we remove that single solitary tool from their toolkit, they have nothing left from which to maintain control. Powerful people and totalitarian regimes can silence a person, but they cannot silence an idea. It does not matter if the person is Patrick Henry or Alexei Navalny. Once an idea is out in the world, there's no putting that genie back in that bottle. So make good decisions, choose your interactions wisely, and we will see you next time. And always remember, fight in the shade.